I think that if you can find a way to separate, you know, your internal beliefs, your bias, the bias of the people around you from the analysis that you're doing, um, then it allows you to make points that people trust, people Mm -hmm. believe in. Um, and it's really, really hard because, you know, so often we want, we want to like make the point that benefits our team or benefits, you know, there's so many different reasons. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Data Scientist Show. Today, we have Nick Handel. Nick joined Airbnb during the early days as a senior data scientist focusing on growth. He led the launch of the data side of Airbnb trips and later built a team that designed Airbnb's end-to-end machine learning platform, Big Head. He was recognized as 30 under 30 by Forbes in 2018. Today, as the co-founder and CEO of Transform, he is building the first centralized metric store that empowers data analysts to deliver insights. We'll talk about data science in product growth, building data science tools and ML platforms, and of course, his career journey. If you have been enjoying the show, subscribe to the channel and give me a five-star review. So let's start with your career journey. Um, How did you get into data science? Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, it's great to be here. Um, I forgot to say welcome to the show. <laughs> well, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank um, you. So yeah, let's see. How did I get into data? Um, yeah, so I was always really interested in math as a kid, um, and so I, you know, did some math competitions. I, um, you know, was kind of a little bit accelerated and um, took some took a bunch of different classes. And so when I got to college, I didn't know what I wanted to do. You know, um, I think a lot of kids in college are kind of in that position, yeah. especially in the beginning. And so I figured that the most generic thing that I could study was math. I figured if I studied math, I could go and do anything and I could, you know, switch careers early on if I didn't like what I was doing. And so I started off there and I would say that you know there's some kind of natural relationship between uh, applied math and wanting to do data, right? Yeah. And so um, I ended up getting a summer internship at BlackRock um, in 2011, and I quickly realized that the most fun, most interesting part of that job for me was just working with data, mm-hmm. and. Um, and so I was on a team that was doing lots of kind of portfolio analysis on, on some of the portfolios that, um, uh, you know, bigger funds, uh, uh, had BlackRock manage. And I really liked doing that analysis, but I really wanted to just go deeper. Yeah. And so I, yeah, that was kind of the beginning. Cool. Thanks for sharing that. And, uh, can you share a little bit about what's the day to day like, um, as a quantitative analyst in BlackRock? Yeah, so I think it really depends on on what kind of team you're on. Um, BlackRock is a a really data driven uh, organization, and so you know most of of the parts of the company use data in some way. And and one of BlackRock's biggest products is this platform called Aladdin, which is basically a data and data analysis mm-hmm. platform. Um, and so you know it probably depends on what part of the organization you're in. I was originally um, a a part of a group called uh, multi-asset client solutions. And basically we just managed portfolios of a bunch of different data asset types. And so a lot of the work that I was doing initially was kind of just 
doing analysis on the performance of those portfolios um, and reporting that information out to clients. That was my internship. And then I really wanted to kind of get into, you know, deeper math and, and yeah. do some programming too. Um, my very first kind of venture into, uh, into programming was actually at uh, BlackRock. So mm -hmm. I'd taken a few computer science classes as a part of my math degree, but um, we, we ended up basically just trying to automate this thing that a bunch of uh, portfolio managers were doing at BlackRock. Yeah. And I did that in VBA. And so it was mm -hmm. a very terrible first experience programming. <laughs> yeah. But um, I think a lot of, a lot of uh, you know, data analysts start with Excel and then mm -hmm. try VBA or maybe try you know, something else. Right. Um, and so that was my first experience. And then from there, um, joined this team called, um, called Market Advantage, which was um, a, it was a risk parity fund, which, you know, somebody can go and look that up and mm -hmm. <laughs> learn more about that. Okay. Um, but it, it was basically a, a bunch of different, you know, quantitative signals for how different assets were going to perform. Mm -hmm. And so behind the scenes was basically a bunch of, you know, a bunch of machine learning and, and a bunch of analysis to try and figure out what kinds of um, signals we should build. And so that was, I didn't realize it at the time, but I was doing data science and that was actually kind of before the word data science existed, yeah. right? Because that was 2012, 2013. Mm -hmm. I think that was, you know, right when that article got published that it was like the, the sexiest job, right? Right. <laughs> um, and so that was my, yeah, that was my first kind of experience um, as, as, you know, doing data science work. Yeah. So. And then um, how did you get into Airbnb? What was the transition like from the finance industry to tech? Yeah, so I've had a few kind of career transitions that, you know, they weren't they weren't really that um, kind of planned out. You know, mm -hmm. they just they just happened, and I got really lucky and ended up finding the right people. and And so in 2014, I left BlackRock, and I knew that I wanted to do something related to startups. I you know was in San Francisco. This yeah. was like, you know, so many cool startups were everywhere, and I wanted to um, have some experiences there. And so I started working on some startup ideas with friends, um, but uh, quickly realized I just didn't have the set of experiences that I really needed to be successful. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember I went to um, a meetup at Airbnb and just met some really great people and then decided that I wanted to interview. And then I met more great people and I was just like, yeah. I can't, you know, I can't pass this up. This yeah. is such a great opportunity. <laughs> and the company was growing so fast right. and... They had just raised um, their around that was at a $10 billion valuation. Um, and so it was just like it was a hot tech company that mm -hmm. I, you know, I was really interested in joining. Yeah. So. And uh, what was the, the your first project at Airbnb? Oh, yeah. So it was funny. I joined the growth team mm -hmm. and my very first project was doing analysis on the, the emails that the company was sending, which, you know, I thought it was funny at the time because I, I probably was subscribed to like three, you know, email, um, email, uh, like groups or whatever. Yeah. I like, I just unsubscribed from everything. And so yeah. I was like, okay, this is, this is a real challenge. Mm -hmm. This is like not a space that I know a ton about. I think that the very first thing that I was in charge of doing was basically there was an experiment that had been run about three weeks before I joined mm -hmm. and they had 
basically a bunch of assignment uh, assignment data sets. So like, you know, this user saw uh, uh, this version of the email, this user saw this version of the email, and they wanted me to do some analysis on it. But they basically just had a fairly messy data warehouse mm -hmm. and um, and some, you know, data that said who got assigned to the experiment. And so it was, it was you know, just a bunch of SQL, like write a bunch of SQL and figure out what happened. Um, and yeah, I ended up kind of leading to more and more experiments. And um, I got, this was another one of those moments where I just got lucky and was kind of in the right place. Um, the company was just releasing some tooling for data uh, scientists to do experimentation mm -hmm. analysis. And so I started tinkering around with that. And that actually, you know, just to not to like fast forward fully to today was kind of the beginning of the inspiration for the the company that I'm working on now. Yeah. So, yeah. I think uh, a lot of companies we have internal tools to do A-B testing. I used to work on a team at Amazon that um, runs a lot of A-B testing for internal teams. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the data science tools, the experimentation tools you build there? Yeah, so the very first, um, the very first tool that we used was, um, it was very, very basic and it, it was called, uh, it, it was called experiment reporting framework. Mm -hmm. Um, so ERF and Airbnb since built, you know, a ton of iterations on top of it and made it a really, really amazing tool. Um, but basically what it did was it allowed you to express a SQL query. Um, so basically say, you know, this is where the data is in my data warehouse. Um, and then. Uh, and express an aggregation on top of that. So, you know, I want to sum this. I want to take the, like, you know, mean of this. I want to yeah. divide this thing by this thing. Um, and then it would basically join those data sets to uh, the data sets that have the experimentation assignments in mm -hmm. them. Um, and it was this, you know, big data pipeline that would run and do that for all of the different yeah. um, experiments that the company was running. And then it would... Uh, serve those uh, results to the user in like a very, very rude, you know, rudimentary mm. version of, of an experimentation dashboard. And then that tool kind of iterated over time and, um, and just became better and better. And, you know, some of the like really, really big things that they added on to it were, um, you know, just much better kind of analysis of how the experiment was doing over time. Mm -hmm. So how you were doing on converging to like, uh, you know, to um, something that was statistically significant. Yeah. And then, you know, lots of guardrails that helped business users kind of see the data and not misinterpret it. Right. Um, and then what else? Um, there, there was a lot of really useful stuff around being able to slice by different dimensions. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you see that a result is not statistically significant, but you really have a hypothesis that like, hey, maybe it's good on mobile or something yeah. like that. And so then you slice by mobile and you see that, Oh, it's really good on Android, but it's mm -hmm. not good on iPhones or something like that. And then you have to dig in and say, oh, there was a bug on the iPhones. Yeah. And so, you know, we need to go fix the bug, rerun the experiment. Um, and this is the kind of tooling that just, it has such a profound impact if you've used it, right? Mm -hmm. But it's just not generally accessible, right? Yeah. So few companies actually have data, data tools that are capable of doing this. Right. Um, so many data analysts are kind of in that position that, I was in when I really just, you know, first joined Airbnb where I just mm -hmm. have a bunch of data over here, a bunch of data over here, 
and they need to join it and make a bunch of graphs and like figure out how to interpret it. Yeah. So. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Um, and uh, from my own experience, I know when we have this type of tool, a dashboard, like you mentioned, you need to put on guardrails or some alarms to um, kind of remind people of best practices. So can you share um, what are some common mistakes you see people make when they um, use the tool or when they interpret results? Yeah, I mean, there are so many mistakes that you can make specifically with, with product experimentation. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So there are so many mistakes. Um, and, you know, I made a lot of them. Um, the I, I, I kept this tracker of every experiment I ran at Airbnb. And I mm -hmm. think in the first two years, it was like 150 or 160. So, I mean, we really got to launching a lot of experiments wow, that's towards a lot. the end. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we were doing a few a week. And, you know, some of them took... Uh, some of them took months and some of them took, you know, two days. Mm -hmm. Um, so we kind of, we saw a bunch of different failure modes. Um, I think, you know, some of the more interesting ones were, um, cross device tracking is mm -hmm. really, really hard, right? So if a user, uh, sees one version of the experiment on one device and then comes back to a different device and you're doing like an offline or a, yeah. uh, a logged out user experience, right? So like, uh, an experience on search or login or sign up or, you know, anything that you can do logged out, then you might realize that, well, they were just a cookie on this device. And right. so I gave them experiment, you know, uh, treatment A. Yeah. And then they were a different cookie on this mm -hmm. device. So I gave them treatment B. Um, and so you'd kind of find out that you kind of ruined your experiment because you showed them both sides of it. Yeah. Um, so that's a big one. That's, that's called um, uh, uh, mixed group. And, um, you know, we, we kind of built tooling to protect from that. Mm -hmm. I think the other ones are, there's some really hard stuff around mobile devices mm -hmm. because, uh, the way that mobile devices send events, um, you know, it, it basically buckets events to try and save a uh, battery on your phone. Yeah. And so, for example, if somebody's, uh, if like an app crashes or they exit the phone or exit the app or mm -hmm. they, you know, turn their phone off or something like that. Um, they might do something and then that event gets uh, bucketed on the phone to be sent off to, you know, to Airbnb or oh. whatever other company, but it never actually goes. And right. so then you don't know that that thing happened. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, you just end up missing data. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's a big one. I think there's a lot around time. I, did, I ran some experiments where they had big novelty effects and mm -hmm. then those novelty effects wore off. Yeah. So for the audience who are not yeah. familiar with novelty effect, can yeah. you explain yeah, yeah. that though? So um, novelty effect is basically when, you know, um, let's say you have some new feature and you put a, a big button on it that says new, yeah. right? And um, and then everyone clicks that button initially, but the feature is not very good, right? right? <laughs> yeah. Like people don't come back. Yeah. And so you launch this thing and you say, well, you know, tons of people are going to click this thing because it's new, it's interesting. Mm -hmm. And so your data is going to spike and, you know, you're going to see a bunch of people clicking that button. Um, but then, you know, they're not coming back, they're not using it. And so you might see that, um, that like the kind of longer term impacts are much lower than the shorter term yeah. impacts. Um, so that's, that's one interesting thing. Um, and then there's, there's also, there's a funny word, but cannibalization yeah. uh, is like a funny thing. And, you know, it's an interesting thing in, uh, in experimentation mm -hmm. where you uh, will run an experiment 
and let's say somebody was going to buy this week anyways, like, you know, I don't know, Amazon, they, they needed a, um, you know, a, a blender or something like yeah. that. And so, um, you know, you then run an email that, that sends them a deal on a blender and then they go and they buy a blender, but they would have just bought a blender, you know, anyways, when they had some yeah. time later that week anyways. And so there's some kind of, you know, experiments where you'll see a spike in, in purchases in the beginning, but it's actually just pulling purchases forward or something like that. Right. Um, and so that's another case where you see some novelty effects. And so then you have to do this analysis where, um, you know, you basically look at from the moment that somebody's exposed, kind of how did they interact with it? Mm -hmm. And then do statistical tests where you're actually looking at like from the moment that every single person was exposed, rather than doing these very kind of broad statistical tests of like, everyone who's exposed to this experiment, mm. um, you know, did it, was it like statistically significant? Um, cause you end up kind of blending users who were exposed a day ago with users who were exposed 30 days ago. Right. Um, so. Okay. So you're doing like kind of a cohort level cohort level sta yeah, study instead of do, uh, I think the standard AB testing is you have a cutoff or treatment control. You just treat everything the same. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. The the standard way is you basically just continually mm -hmm. assign people and then at some point you stop the experiment and you run a statistical test and you say, is it significant? Um and so what I'm talking about, yeah, is doing this kind of cohort analysis yeah. to see how it changes behaviors. Right. That's that's really interesting. And uh so you run 150 experiments of over a year. Have you done any meta-analysis to look at them together? Yeah, definitely. Um you know, it, a combination of like formal meta-analysis, yeah. right? Of like kind of going in and mm -hmm. exploring those. Um, and so, you know, we, we ran some interesting analysis, not just on my experiments, but on all of the data analyst experiments. And I'm trying to, you know, I don't have a, t a ton of memory of like what the really interesting things were, but I, I definitely remember some parts of it where we found that, um, that really only about a third of the product features that we um tried actually launched mm -hmm. and i think that is probably the best statistic for understanding why we run product experiments yeah. right mm -hmm. and it wasn't just that we only launched a third it was that a third actually had roughly the inverse effect of what we expected yeah. which is you know if you think about a product team just mm -hmm. shipping everything that they think of rather than running experiments then you know, you kind of end up in a place where they're shipping a third of the things are good, a third of the things are bad. They're kind of just staying in the same place. Yeah. And so that kind of speaks to the power of experimentation, where if you know which one third of those things are good, mm -hmm. one, you'll be better able to kind of find the interesting things um, that, you know, that you should go and explore and try next. Um, but two, you just won't launch the bad things yeah. <laughs> at all. Right. You know, net effect in the long term hopefully lead to better business outcomes or whatever people are working on. So yeah, I think have that data point is definitely um, important for product managers to realize. Oh, not every you know something might be counterintuitive. That's why you need to look at the data. And uh, I'd like to follow up with the. Uh, uh, you talk about like mobile, like cookies or uh, sessions. Um, I think there's always a challenge for data scientists to decide, should I run my on sessions or like customer ID, especially when you want to combine mobile results to like desktop, or maybe sometimes you run mobile just separately. You don't care whether they have seen something on the desktop. So is the 
choice standardized across Airbnb or different team can have their own choice of what is the unit of experimentation? So the way that we built our, our metrics framework um, is we built it initially around user IDs and what we called uh, 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 visit, unique visitor IDs. Mm-hmm. Um, and unique visitor IDs are basically, um, a, it's like a coalesce of, of user and visitor. Yeah. And so if we can match a device to a user, mm-hmm. then we match it to a user. Um, if we can't, then we leave it as as kind of like a cookie or a visitor okay. ID. And so pretty much every experiment in the early days was run against a unique visitor mm-hmm. or a user ID. And it, it just depends on if they're logged in. So if you were running an experiment on the homepage, right, you can see the homepage logged out. So, um, you know, so that would be something that was uh, run at the visitor level. If you were running an experiment on the checkout page, well, you have to log in in order to, you know, check out for a listing. Yeah. And so we knew, you know, who was kind of on that page. And so we would run those experiments at the user level. Mm-hmm. And in general, user level experimentation, because you're asking the person, you're basically saying like, you're already identified, we know who you are. And so this is, you know, the the user ID. Yeah. It just makes everything, in, you know, easier. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we ended up running, I would say, about probably 50-50 between those two. And it just it just depends. Um, but the preference was always if you knew who the user was, you would use yeah. the user ID. Yeah. Um, so it depends on the scenario and the use case. Yeah. 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 Thanks for sharing that. And do you remember what is like a most counterintuitive or some interesting finding from those experiments? So I, I'm actually, I'm remembering, you asked me about the, what I did in my first few weeks. I'm yeah. remembering the, the kind of story there. Um, I've written a little bit about this um, and it's on the, the uh, Transform blog. Okay. Um, but the, basically it was a timing experiment. And so we, I think we tested sending an email, um, you know, 24 hours after they abandoned their cart or like 72 hours or a week mm-hmm. hour. I remember a week those hour. emails. <laughs> yeah, I mean, of course. Yeah, <laughs> you probably started receiving them in you know late 2014, and they were really effective. Yeah, <laughs> you know, we thought that this would be a valuable email, and you know, we were we were kind of right. It was mm-hmm. it was valuable, and it was a good email to send. And it yeah. you know turns out it's better to send it sooner. Um, but what was really interesting was we just saw this huge drop off around uh, 48 hours. Drop off of uh, checkout conversion. Conversion. Yeah. Okay. Um, around 48 hours. Mm-hmm. And so we said, well, that's really weird that it would be so significant right around 48 hours. Yeah. We looked into a bunch of different things, but basically found that we were logging every user out at 48 hours. Oh. And if they're logged out, they have to go remember their password right. and figure out how to log back in. Um, and so we ended up going to the trust and safety team and saying like, do we really need to log people out after 48 hours? Mm-hmm. Can we, you know, just do a like quick verification that they've been on this device for a long time. Like, can we make some rules that basically make it so that we know this isn't an account takeover and whatnot? Um, And so they agreed to let us run experiments where we took the logout time from 48 hours to um, seven days. And that alone, um, I think Airbnb in 2014, um, you know, probably booked 38, 39 million nights. And that experiment alone contributed, I think, about 1.2 million nights 
uh, incremental uh, to Airbnb's growth. And that yeah. was, and we knew that because we were running experiments. So we yeah. had statistically significant, you know, results that showed how many bookings came mm -hmm. out of that. Um, and so that was, I think that wasn't counterintuitive. It was just like an opportunity that we just did not see. And when, when we saw it, it was like, oh my gosh, this is, we can literally change a number in the code base from 48 hours to, you know, uh, to one week. Yeah. And it's like a one line code change and it's worth such a significant <laughs> amount of money. Um, and what's interesting is we kind of chased that down and we said, how do we make it really easy to log in? Right. Um, and we ended up running some experiments. This was probably the most counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. We took the uh, login with Facebook button. People were getting confused between login and sign up. They didn't know if they had an account, but it turns out it doesn't really matter. Okay. If you just press continue with Facebook mm. uh, or continue with Google, yeah. well, you know, that routes it to Google and Google knows if you have an account or not. Mm -hmm. And so we changed some of the language there and made it a little less, um, you know, put a little bit less burden on the user to figure yeah. out if they already had an account or not. Um, and that experiment also had a really, really significant uh, impact. And I think that was an experiment where I didn't realize how simple, like, you know, it was just changing a string from login with Facebook yeah. to continue with Facebook. And that was another one that was worth hundreds of thousands of nights booked. Um, yeah. So that was actually counterintuitive. I, when that happened, it was like the whole team was just shocked. Yeah. So. Thanks for sharing that. I love those anecdotes. Um, the fix or the change are seemingly easy, but I'm sure you spend a lot of time doing the deep dive. Sometimes I feel like data scientists are just like Sherlock Holmes, except our tools are, you know, data science tools or programming languages. Do you have any framework uh, processes when you try to understand the experiment doing those deep dives? Because every every um, experiment, the, the case is very different. Um, so how do you go down the rabbit hole to find out, you know, what yeah. you could improve? That is such a hard, that's such a hard question to answer. You know, I mean, there, so there's really good tools, put the information that you need to know, um, in front of you. Right. And, and they do a lot of work to choose the right information to put in front of you. And so when I think about our metric framework at Airbnb, it did a lot of the work for the user. Um, and so it, it, you know, really helped the user, um, to kind of define different metrics, different dimensions, um, and then, you know, surface them to the, the experiment reporting framework. And I think that the experiment reporting framework did a, a pretty good job of kind of highlighting things that were interesting or statistically significant. Yeah. Um, and I think that there are, you know, even better tools nowadays for analysis that, you know, are doing kind of automated, like diving into different dimensions to try and find, you know, interesting cuts and whatnot. Yeah. Um, but I think a lot of it was just kind of curiosity and, and, you know, working with the team. Um, one thing I found was being really close to the engineers, really yeah. talking to the engineers about, you know, what, what's your hypothesis? Like, mm. why do you think this happened? And, you know, s sometimes it's behavioral and sometimes it's, you know, uh, people that are making different decisions. Right. Yeah. But a lot of the time it turns out that, you know, there's probably a bug in this corner or there's, you know, the like logout time is 48 hours. Yeah. Like I'm 
pretty confident that that came from an engineer who's mm-hmm. like, oh yeah, well, I, I think that that, you know, is 48 hours in the code base or something like that. And so I think just being really close to the different people who will have different information. Right. Like product managers tend to have really good insights into the users, mm-hmm. right? Because they're doing user research, they're talking to design. Yeah. Um, and engineers tend to have really good insights into the code base. And so if as a data person, you can be connected to the product people, connected to the engineers, and maybe even, you know, business people who are kind of, you know, thinking about um, thinking about a bunch of other different things, mm-hmm. it'll help you to have better ideas uh, of like what to actually dig into, what to slice by, what kinds of questions you should be asking. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And also, uh, I think one thing data scientists also product managers struggle with is you ha- you can always slice the data you know if you torture the data hard enough it will always give you some type of hypothesis some type of story so how do you avoid those random hypotheses that actually are meaningless yeah. yeah i mean it's so hard because um a good like a really good product manager won't do that mm-hmm. right a good yeah. like a really good product manager won't force you to tell their story mm-hmm. they'll allow you to kind of dig in Um, and you know, I've certainly worked with people who really want to make the point that they want to make (laughs) and and they, they don't understand why you don't want to make the same point too. Right. Um, and I think, I think that as, as data people, you know, we kind of, we kind of need to be Switzerland in some of like, we need to be neutral, Neutral. right. Mm -hmm. Um, in some of these, uh, arguments. And it's really hard because I think oftentimes we have opinions too, right? We yeah. think that we should build this. We're trying to make our own points. Mm-hmm. And I think that if you can find a way to separate, you know, your internal beliefs, your bias, the bias of the people around you yeah. from the analysis that you're doing, um, then it allows you to make points that people trust, people mm-hmm. believe in. Um, and it's really, really hard because, you know, so often we want, we want to like, make the point that benefits our team or benefits, right. you know, there's so many different reasons yeah, or incentives. We, we want a promotion. We want right. to have the impact. Yeah. I think that over time, you know, it's like trust, right? Mm-hmm. You have to build trust. And the way that you build trust is you, uh, you separate those two things. I think it's okay to voice your opinions and say, yeah. Hey, I really believe that, you know, this is an interesting finding in the, the data. And I think that it means this. And like, I think we should do this because of that. Um, but if you can separate, this is an interesting insight in the data from, I think these other things, um, then I think that's really powerful. And, and I remember some of, um, some of the slides that I made early on for product managers, for business people were not like that. And I remember kind of getting this feedback and, and making some changes and trying to like, you know, it's in a different part of the slide, it's a different color text, like this is my opinion. Mm-hmm. This is what the data says. Yeah. Like if those two things are separate, that's pretty, it's pretty powerful. And I think people around you will realize, you know, that, that you're unbiased and, and that you're really trying to present information in an unbiased way. And I think it actually provides a framework to other people to try and provide their opinions outside of the data. Yeah. Um, yeah, so. I, I like that. What what is the what does the data say and what's my opinion? Because some people say, Oh, data scientists you just present the results, you're completely yeah. unbiased. But I think it's also Im- 
important to be biased. That's the whole point. We hire a human instead of uh, a robot doing the task. Yeah, exactly. And uh, that might sound silly, but a lot of great ideas actually comes from some intuition, especially if you know a lot about users, the human behaviors, and not everything is reflected in data. So I think it's important to have an opinion, but separate those two um, that help you have the awareness, you know, just for yourself to evaluate your opinion. Also, like you mentioned, earn trust from the stakeholders. So thanks for sharing that. And you're also yeah. the founding member of Experimentation Council working on design better experiments. Um, and uh, um, I like that you talked about where we need to be neutral, um, like Switzerland. So when it comes to building a experimentation tool, uh, a tool always seems like neutral, but I think uh, every tool also have this um, some hints on opinions. This subconsciously will affect the user, right? What metric are, are you going to put there? Uh, what is the first metric data scientists are going to see? So my question is, when you build those experimentation tools, uh, do you try to influence data scientists on best practices, say, uh, don't peak early, don't over slicing your data, or you just completely be there as a tool and you let them make the decision? Yes, ab like absolutely. Um, I think that I think that the tools need to reflect the kind of culture that you're trying to build, mm -hmm. right? Um, if you just design tools that just put a bunch of numbers up there, yeah. that's the kind of culture, you know, you're going to build, you're going to have uh, a bunch of people who know a bunch of numbers and they're going to form all of their own opinions yeah. and, and kind of their own beliefs. And, um, as a data person, you know, you kind of know the nuances of the data. And so oftentimes, you know, really good data analysts will find ways to kind of present the data with those nuances, mm -hmm. um, in a way that allows for, uh, kind of less technical people, uh, business people to kind of join them on the journey of the various kind of points that they're trying to make with the data. Yeah. So some some really good examples of this. Um, so the experimentation council at Airbnb, it was it was meant to improve uh, the experimentation framework, but beyond that, it was meant to ex improve the culture of experimentation. Um, and we did that by, you know, one, requesting various features that allowed us to kind of improve the culture of experimentation and address mm -hmm. problems. Um, so examples of some of the things that we advocated for, um, we made it so that as a company, we had, I think there were eight, eight or 10 kind of core metrics and they were added to every experiment in the company. Yeah. So, you know, new user signups, nights booked, customer service contact mm -hmm. rate, um, those were the ones that really mattered to Airbnb. Yeah. Um, but there were, you know, lots of lots of other ones um, that we chose to kind of exclude because mm -hmm. they weren't as important. And so, the nice thing there was everyone had to be uh, judged against the like most important metrics in the company. Yeah. You couldn't launch an experiment and just be like, I'm not going to include that one because yeah. like right. I know it's not going to be good. Yeah. Um, and so that was the first thing. And then the second thing that we did was we made every data analyst say uh, what the target metrics were mm. for the experiment. Like, um, and I, I think we allowed people to pick three, uh, maybe, maybe more than that. Even. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think early on we wanted like one or two, right. um, and they kind of just expanded. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that was really useful cause that allowed, 
us to say, it allowed us to tell the rest of the organization, this was what we were trying to move. Right. Right. Up front, which is part of the scientific method recommended, yeah. mm -hmm. but not everyone always does that. You know, sometimes people just launch experiments and then dig and dig and dig until they yeah. find something interesting. Um, and, and then the other thing was we made it really, really easy to add a lot of metrics. And I think that this was controversial. Some people have opinions that, you know, you should only look at like the you know, <laughs> metrics you're trying to move or something yeah. like that. I don't believe that mm -hmm. at all. I, I believe that you should look at as much data as you can possibly look at, mm -hmm. because if you have a dashboard of a hundred metrics and you can see which, you know, 30 of them went up and mm -hmm. which 20 of them went down and which ones were neutral, mm -hmm. like you get this whole picture of how this experiment, how these new interactions are altering users' experiences, their behavior, their kind of interactions with the product, mm -hmm. the, you know, um, even the interactions within like your company. Yeah. Um, and that was fascinating and it just led to so many interesting insights. Um, but with that came people misinterpreting all kinds right. of things and mm -hmm. seeing some metric that was, you know, up by 7%, but it wasn't even remotely statistically right. significant. And so we tried to, um, we added the ability, we basically made it so that things that were going up or things that were going in positive directions mm -hmm. were green, things that were going in negative directions were red. Um, and we made it so that once something hit a certain uh, power level, um, we would actually take it and say, hey, rather than showing, you know, plus 0.8% or something, we'll just show a big zero and say neutral and you have to hover mm. over it to see the actual oh, value. Okay. Um, and so that was, that was an interesting one. Um, yeah. and then the other thing was there are ways to, um, kind of protect from peaking, right? right. Yeah. And so there, there's some interesting kind of, you know, statistical things that you can do there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we, we did all of it. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So you did, uh, have some design thinking when you designed this data science tool and tried to, um, recommend, uh, best practices. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, for the teams who, for example, if they launch the experiment that uh, have metrics where the core, one of the core uh, metrics were significantly negative, do you go yell at them? Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> we um, there it 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 required a conversation. Yeah. So actually, the the sign up and login one was a good example. Mm -hmm. So you know. There's good and bad, right? So some of our like login experiments led to more customer service tickets. Mm -hmm. But then we did the analysis and we said, well, there are more customer service tickets because there are more bookings and yeah. more people are traveling <laughs> on Airbnb. And like, right. this is good. Yeah. You know, yeah. this is good. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, we would go and have that conversation and the customer service, you know, the um, team that was responsible for customer service tickets would say, we don't like this, but... Yeah this is good. Yeah. You know, this is growth in the business. So this is, you know, launch the experiment. Mm -hmm. Um, another example is, um, really, um, great product manager on the team. Uh, Lenny Richitsky, who now runs a newsletter, <laughs> yeah. um, came to me at one point and said, Hey, some of these experiments you're running around login are actually impacting my metrics. <laughs> um, and he was working on the instant book uh, feature, mm -hmm. uh, which allowed kind of people to just rather than contacting the host instantly book. And so he was working to try and increase the percentage. Mm -hmm. 
And it turns out that one of the features that the hosts have is the ability to say only people who have previous bookings can instant book my listing. Right. Well, if they're not logged in, we mm -hmm. don't know that. And so we don't show that it's instant bookable. Yeah. And so by increasing how many people were logging in, um, we were making it so that more people could see instant booking in the product mm -hmm. and then choose to instantly book listings, which then positively impacted his metrics. And, uh, and so at one point he reached out to me and he said, Hey, I like this experiment. How do we get this launched? And I was like, I'm glad you asked. Cause you know, I'm talking to these other teams and they don't want to launch it. Yeah. So like, how do we, you know, how do we work through this? And then I think that that kind of sparks interesting, um, product conversations where you at least have that good founding, you know, foundational data to make mm. the decision. Like yeah. everyone knows the number, but you have to have the hard conversation around like, is this good for the business? Right. Yeah. Um, that's a great story. So are those experiments visible to all product managers or sometimes you have to randomly talk to somebody in the kitchen to find out? Yeah. So, so this it definitely visible. Yeah. Visible to, to all. Oh, the okay. Yeah. That's cool. And um, then, um, do you coordinate because sometimes the feature you're experimenting might affect other team. Do you have the conversation? Hey, I want to run my first. And that's another one of those hard lessons we learned. <laughs> I think at one point, um, I remember this, Oh, we were, we were, um, we were working on a, a banner that would, you know, tell people to like log in or something like that yeah. or, and you know, some other team was working on another banner and some other team was working on another banner. And I remember some version of the product where if you just were so fortunate enough to get into these three experiments, you'd have like two banners from the top and one yeah. banner from the bottom. <laughs> it would be like this team did not coordinate. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, you should coordinate, especially when features are overlapping. Um, there, there are interesting things where some companies, um, and I believe Netflix, uh, does this or they did this in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, they'll actually only launch a small number of experiments at the same time. Okay. And, um, they will, uh, basically have like a queue of experiments because they really want to make sure they don't, uh, overlap. Right. Airbnb was kind of the opposite. Every single team was launching experiments mm -hmm. all the time. Um, and you just kind of hoped that the net effect of all of these other experiments wouldn't impact your experiment. Right. Um, so do you, yeah. when you estimate an, the net effect, do you just look at the feature, uh, for example, are they like above the fold or the location of it? Or are you thinking about the signing checkout pipeline from the life cycle perspective? Um, well, we would have all that data. So we would, you know, we would look at those numbers, which is, that's the benefit of having tons and tons of metrics mm -hmm. and being able to calculate them all, yeah. which, you know, we can talk about transform at some <laughs> sure. point, but like, that's what we do. Yeah. Um, and, and that, that's kind of the root of, you know, the inspiration uh, for a lot of what we were, we're working on. Mm -hmm. But basically if you have a lot of metrics and you can look at all of them and you have that information, then you might look at the ones that you expected to move or that your team cares about, mm -hmm. but you kind of have to look at all of the other ones and everyone else can too. So at the very least, you know, you'll know what's happening in those other parts of the product. Um, I would say it was, you know, most experiments had some effect on other parts of the product that people mm -hmm. didn't, didn't expect. And like, yeah. if you were just doing analysis on 10 metrics, you probably wouldn't pick that up. But if you're doing analysis and you have 150 metrics in, mm -hmm. in your kind of experiment reporting tool, 
then you can't ignore it. And, you know, you need to go have the hard conversations with different teams or, you know, you learn something interesting that leads to a valuable next experiment. So, yeah. yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And uh, what are some other things that um, are a little bit surprising, but also kind of common in the context of A-B testing experimentation? Mm. I would say just the biggest thing that I think surprises people is how often they're wrong, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and I kind of already said that, but it's, it's kind of a profound realization when you realize, you know, it's really just that, you know, our intuitions are only so good. And, and I think as data people, we understand that. Yeah. But I don't think that a lot of businesses really understand mm -hmm. that. And I think that people just kind of assume that if you build good stuff and you, you know, sell it, then like everything will be fine. Yeah. Um, but I think what we found was basically just that in net, it'll be okay, mm -hmm. but you can build a really, really good business if you have a, you know, good product as a foundation, and then you have the ability to just ask every possible question when you're running experiments. Um, I'm trying to think what else is, is kind of like really surprising or I think the, the, the other surprising thing is when you have really good tooling, um, because nobody can ignore the numbers and because they are so easy to produce and to go to the dashboard and look at, um, it is just like, it is, you know, so hard to ignore them that everyone just kind of becomes a part of the experimentation yeah. culture. Um, and that's probably the most fun part is when you, you know, when you see like, uh, you know, business development manager paying attention to product experiments and saying like, ha, oh, that's, that's really cool. Like I've got some ideas too, you know, mm -hmm. and just knowing that they can look at the data and actually ask questions and, and have ideas is pretty cool. Um, yeah. And that, that really happened. Like we had a great culture of experimentation at, at Airbnb. Um, and that actually did happen. Like, you know, I remember a business development manager working on a partnership deal and then like they really wanted to know how their partnership was was working out. And mm -hmm. so we ran some experiments with the partnership. Yeah. Uh, and we just like found great data and it was cool because they could then actually, um, you know, pull that those numbers out and go back to the, the conversation with mm -hmm. the, the partner and kind of talk about like how to make the partnership even better. Yeah. And that was, you know, that's something that we talk about trying to impact products, um, you know, uh, positively. But that's that's really cool because that's like, parts of the company that you just wouldn't even expect to care about experiments or, you know, want to talk about them. Yeah. So, so um, how do you foster that good experimentation culture, especially outside the data science team? I think that it was, it was a combination. Well, so, I, I mean, you know, I'll keep saying tooling, like tooling, I th it has to come from the tooling. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that the other thing was, you know, executive support. Um, we had a few executives you know, the VP of engineering was, was very supportive of running experiments. Um, we had a director of product on kind of growth that was, you know, just wanted to see the numbers, but only wanted to see the statistically significant ones. And those like, that's pretty good when you have the, those kinds of leaders who, um, you know, have conversations with the CEO and, and, uh, the like executive team, yeah. um, and say like, these are the numbers I'm confident about them and, and, you know, can actually go back and kind of talk about their work. Um, 
then, you know, I think that they get interested in it because it allows them to have a ton, just have a ton of confidence when they go and talk to, you know, the executives who they're uh, reporting to. Right. And I think that the executives really like it because the, their reports are coming to them with a ton of confidence saying, Hey, you know, we ran these experiments. We expect the, this to happen to the business. And, um, and sometimes it's hard because, you know, in a, uh, a really senior person will really want to launch something yeah, and it'll end up being bad. Mm-hmm. But I think that a, a good culture of experimentation is when, um, that conversation happens and the, like, clearly the right thing to do is, is to not launch it. Yeah. And the executive is like willing to back down, like willing to be wrong in the face of data. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I think that, you know, maybe a part of that was that we didn't really shame being wrong. Mm -hmm. It was kind of just like a part of being curious was being wrong. So, yeah. Yeah. Even if a experiment uh, failed, it's not like a failure. You learn something from it. Yeah. Um, And uh, let's talk a a little bit about the data project you worked on for um, Airbnb trips. So, yeah. What did you do there? Yeah. So, um, for a number of years, Airbnb was interested in building out experiences as a product. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the the company is um, was you know really invested in just the idea of kind of local travel experiences, right? And obviously, staying in you know somebody else's uh, home or some kind of you know uh, guest unit or something like that is a great way to have a local experience. Um, and you know, what was cool is in the early days we got travel credit and we you know, um, I was on the growth team. So I worked with, uh, I worked on various efforts that like meant I got to travel to like Tokyo and like cool places. Um, and, and so, you know, stayed with people who were just super generous and kind and like wanted to show me the places Mm -hmm. around there, you know, where they lived. And so I had some of these experiences and, and so I kind of, I knew that uh, I think all of, a lot of employees and a lot of people who traveled on Airbnb in, in those early days kind of felt how special that was. Yeah. Um, but we thought that, you know, we could kind of extend the experience beyond just like where you're staying mm-hmm. to, you know, I want to go and learn about some interesting part of where I am. Yeah. And that ended up um, leading to um, a team forming around kind of experiences. Mm -hmm. Initially it was really small, kind of eight, 10 people. And they did a bunch of user research. They kind of, you know, tried to figure out what a product, uh, product could look like around this. Um, and then around, I think it was kind of early 2016, the company decided we're going to launch this at the end of 2016. And I got, you know, tap on the shoulder saying like, hey, we are going to need a data person over there at some point soon. It's really unclear, you know, like when. Yeah. And I just said, this seems really cool. This, you know, there are like 10 people on this team. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they ended up recruiting a, a few different folks to go and uh, join them. And they already had a data engineer on the team who was yeah. doing a good job kind of pulling data and, mm-hmm. and helping them to kind of... Um, answer questions around like, where are people traveling? What might be good cities to try and launch this in, et cetera. Um, and so I got to kind of go and be a tech lead on this team. Um, and it was really small and 
originally it was, I think when I joined, it was probably about 14, 15 people. Um, so, um, the, you know, CEO, Brian Chesky was paying a ton of attention to this team. So yeah. they were, we would like, he would come to our standups and, you know, mm. um, so it was just, it was a flashy part of the company and it was, it was really fun. Um, and we just had to build all kinds of new stuff, but we wanted to do it in a way that was, we were going to have entirely new data sets, right? Like mm -hmm. the data sets weren't going to be the same data sets as the rest no. of the business. We were going to launch an entirely new product. And so we wanted to do data really well. Um, and so we ended up going and talking to the data tools and data infra team. And because they were so, um, I had already worked a ton with them yeah. on experimentation and, you know, now two of them are my co-founders. So we clearly <laughs> had a good relationship. Um, and so, you know, they basically said, Hey, this is, you know, executive level. Like this is the most important thing according yeah. to the company that we launch experiences mm -hmm. by the end of the year. So, um, what tools do you need? And there were already some really cool tools, um, that were being built out at the time. Um, Superset is, is an, you know, open source, um, uh, a BI tool that mm -hmm. was being built out. And so we ended up being one of the really early adopters of, of that inside the company. Um, and then we also built kind of new logging infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Um, we ended up, you know, kind of asking for some like extensions to airflow and some cool stuff inside yeah. um, the company related to airflow. And we, yeah, we, you know, built an entire data stack, um, kind of that was, connected but separate from the rest of airbnb's data stack yeah and what was really cool was we made a bunch of decisions um that then ultimately the rest of airbnb kind of adopted right so it was kind of this experiment to see what would work what mm -hmm. of like some of this novel tooling and then the rest of the company you know ended up adopting a lot of that yeah so. that's really cool so here what you did was basically um, collecting data and think about what it will be the schema, what tools we're going to mm -hmm. use, and then how can we build a pipeline so we can provide good data for people to do analysis yeah. on top of it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And the, the most important thing I think that we worked on was uh, this new logging infrastructure that mm -hmm. we had. You know, um, the, the like least appealing sounding things are sometimes the most important and yeah. just having good, clean, consistent event logs mm -hmm. was magical. I mean, we could do such interesting <laughs> analysis. Like yep. I think about it now and I'm like, I remember my first two years at Airbnb, we had this thing called air events. Mm -hmm. um, and before that there was, when I first joined, there was a thing called flog and that was kind of how we did our logging. Mm -hmm. And it was the beginning of this tool that um, we called Jitney and it just, uh, it just made everything so much easier. Like we, had a ton of kind of schema enforcement. Um, there are actually interesting new tools popping mm -hmm. up in this space. Um, I think uh, Avo is a is an interesting one uh, yeah. where people are kind of really taking event logging seriously mm -hmm. now, uh, which is great. Yeah, I remember um, when I was debugging some A/B testing experiments, um, digging into the event logs and uh, find out some bugs myself. So I think there's a lot of value for someone understands a data science, basically the downflow of this data product to design the schema of the data. So you understand how data science would analyze it. But in your case, data uh, Airbnb trips is a new product. At that time, maybe you don't even know 
how those data are going to be analyzed, what is going to be the North Star metrics for it. So it's kind of like a chicken egg problem. So it how totally do you was. make that decision? Oh my gosh, it was, what was so hard about it was we didn't really have any data. Yeah. And we were building the pipelines and it's like, you know, the pipelines are empty, right? Nothing is really happening. We have some test data. We've got a little bit of data from some like, you know, user research we did where we right. kind of tried to log things in th cer th uh, certain ways. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you, you also, you know, you don't know two things. One is you don't know what kind of analysis you want to do. So you just collect everything. That was our strategy and okay. it, it works, you yeah. know, I mean, it's a lot of work because you have to, but we also had time ahead of this launch to be like, let's collect everything. Let's know every detail about around how they interact with this app. Yeah. Um, and so we ended up adding, you know, hundreds of events um, um, to the like corner of the application that experiences mm -hmm. was in. And then, um, and, you know, I think that the other, um, the other thing that we did was we were just really, really thoughtful around the entities that existed in our logs. Um, so, you know, the, like, what do we call a user ID? What do we call, you know, um, the, like, the guests, like, country of origin? What do yeah. we call the language that, like, the guest speaks? Um, and just really, really ensuring that, you know, there were structs around uh, those uh, there was like structure around that information yeah. so that, you know, the, you never ended up with like English spelled like four different ways in yeah. your like event data and then trying to like clean all of those up and mm -hmm. catch everything. Um, and so, yeah, we were just really thoughtful around. Yeah. yeah. And later on, did you take any feedback from, uh, you know, data analysts or data scientists when they analyze the data? What is the iteration process look like when you design a data scheme yeah i mean this was one of the more flawless things about the launch i think we um we launched and you know i, I remember we had tier one tier two and tier three uh event logs and i think we launched with you know we were expecting to get all the tier ones most of the tier twos and not the tier threes mm -hmm. and the engineers were so excited to see data we were so excited to see data we'd been operating this world without data that we basically got every event log that we could possibly imagine wanting yeah. in by the launch deadline um, because everyone was just so excited to see data. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, Airbnb at this point already had a culture of data, which, you know, ultimately was won through, you know, hard, hard battles that data scientists before, yeah. before this had to fight. Um, but yeah, it basically meant that um, we weren't really missing much. At okay. launch. Like that's, there was, that's great. the data was just kind of there. So we got to <laughs> yeah. do all kinds of analysis. Mm -hmm. And the other cool thing was, you know, we ended up getting to launch a lot of, um, a lot of kind of machine learning, um, you know, type work, mm -hmm. uh, relatively quickly af after that launch. So, yeah. Is that at that point when you started to do more machine learning at Airbnb? Yeah. So, you know, I did, I did some machine learning at BlackRock right? and then I didn't really know a ton about it. I, you know, it was kind of in, in the like early formation in my head of like, what is this thing? You know, what, why is it useful? Um, and then I ended up working with the marketing team on some attributions some like LTV predictions when yeah. I was on the growth team. And when we got to experiences, we were like, this product is going to have to be so personalized mm -hmm. relative to, 
you know, homes. Homes, you know, maybe you like this decor, or maybe you like, you know, maybe you have a family, so you want like some extra bedrooms mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, but the level of personalization that was kind of, we expected to be required for, you know, do you want to go on a cooking experience? Do you mm-hmm. want to go to an exercise class? Do you want to like go learn about beekeeping? Like totally different things. Yeah. And so that was, um, that ended up being, you know, really, really important. And so it started thinking about experimentation a lot more than, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. Or sorry, that. machine learning. Machine learning. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, before I move on to talk more about um, you leading the machine learning yeah. platform, I want to uh, just, in my mind, it just feels like the experience that you build this um, data infrastructure, this data, um, provide this data, and you launched and, it, you know, like in your words, a flawless <laughs> and the events were so useful. I think that's such a great case study. So looking back now, um, I think it's it was also very challenging because if you think about the industry, there's n- no comparable products. Mm-hmm. There's nothing for you to look for. Um, so for folks who are building some other new um, data product, what is something you think they can learn from this experience besides you know um, logging all the as many events <laughs> as possible? Well, that's that's definitely the main thing is just yeah. collect a lot, collect so much data, more data than than you know you think you need and i was i think people have been talking about this recently i think i saw something on twitter where people talking about you know the challenges around events and um the the really really hard thing about events is like if you don't log them you don't mm. get them right like and you the don't data know. just disappears yeah. and then you go and you try and answer the question and you're like i can't answer that question yeah i and you know let me go and add the event and then i'll cut back to you in a month mm-hmm. once i actually have data mm-hmm. and so i think our attitude there was, you know, we just want knowledge. We want to log everything and be able to answer that question. But I also think that it's, you know, surprising because of the position that most people are in, but I think maybe it shouldn't be surprising. We were starting from scratch. We designed an application and said, this is what it's going to look like, and then we're going to launch mm-hmm. it. And we had, you know, the resources to go and build out every single event in this app. But most, the position that most people are in is, you know, they've built a product and then they've iterated on it for a long, long time. They've removed features, they've added features, they've added new pages, they've merged pages, Mm -hmm. they've like, and so, you know, trying to keep track of all of the different events in that situation is far harder than it is to just start with a blank slate and pick out all the events that you want to be able to track. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I kind of think that the only the like main lesson there is if you're if you're really trying to clean up your event data you kind of just have to 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 you know get the resources to do or get the like space from the rest of you know your day-to-day work to go and do a full audit and just say i need i need like a week and i'm going to make a spreadsheet that just has every single event we logged yeah and i'm going to tell you which ones are good and which ones are bad and i'm going to like you know, need you to go find some engineers who are willing to work on this right. to make our data much, much better mm-hmm. so that I'm not kind of in this, you know, this mode where every time I go to try and answer a question, it's like, do we have the data? Yeah. Is it wrong? Is it, you know, um, and then the way that you can go and you can sell, you know, the, the like engineering manager mm-hmm. on this is 
just tell them like, if we do this, I'm not going to have to go to your team and ask an engineer to go and add an uh, event. Break the like, schema. Yeah. Do everything again. Exactly. Yeah, like, yeah. And, and that's really, really time consuming. Yeah. So if, if you can kind of get that space, but I mean, this is true for all tech debt, right? right. This is like, <laughs> if you can get the space to yeah. just go and actually fix it in a good way. Um, yeah. So I think, I think that's, you know, that's probably the, the best tip is try and get that space and do that audit. Um, we did that a few times before. Um, I did that with our email data mm -hmm. when I first started working on email. Yeah. Um, just to say like, you know, do we know everything? Do we know every open click, unsubscribe, yeah. you know, et cetera. Um, and that ended up being really useful. Yeah. So, yeah. Cool. And how do you gain the knowledge of all the event type? How do you know I'm not missing something? Yeah, you just, I mean, you get the prototype or you get the app or whatever it is and you just click on every button. <laughs> like, I mean, you kind of, you kind of have to think about it as like a tree, right? Yeah. And you have to go down every path to get to every single corner. Mm. And, um, and so, you know, if it helps to like have a whiteboard and draw out the tree yeah. and then, you know, what you want is, is like every single state change, every single action that happens, mm -hmm. um, and you can, you know, you can still prioritize these later and say, hey, every click, those are really important. Yeah. Um, but I don't necessarily need like page scrolls, you know, or something okay. like that. Yeah. Um, but just in case, I'm still going to log page scrolls. Exactly. <laughs> right? But like, can we just do it? Yeah. yeah. It's tier three, but like, um, and it just, if you're, if you find a really data-driven engineer who gets mm -hmm. excited about this, they'll want to do it. You know, they'll want to know, like, they'll... You'll ask for page scrolls and then they'll be like, yeah, do people ever scroll to the bottom of this page? Mm -hmm. You're like, well, we'll never know, you yeah. know, unless you log it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Um, and uh, later on, you led effort to build Big Head, the end-to-end -end machine learning platform. So um, instead of having data scientists build their own machine learning models, what was the motivation behind this? What was the problem you're trying to solve? Yeah, so I had worked on uh, machine learning a few different times, and it was you know mostly relatively simple machine learning models. Um, and one of the things that we realized as a company was we had three huge machine learning models that were really really important, mm -hmm. and those were the you know the basically the trust and safety model. Yeah, like. Is this a concerning booking? Mm -hmm. That was really, really important. We invested a huge amount in that. Yeah. There was uh, search, like, show me the good listings. Right. Um, and then there was pricing. What's a good price, you know, mm -hmm. for, for my uh, Airbnb on any given night? Yeah. Um, and those three models had entire teams built around them. And of those teams, you know, there were maybe two or three people working on the machine learning model and then seven people working on the infrastructure in order to support it. Mm -hmm. And so as a company, what they realized were, you know, what the kind of the um, infrastructure and engineering leadership realized was, Hey, we've got 21, you know, engineers across these three teams yeah. building infrastructure for machine learning. And then every other part of the company that's trying to build out machine learning applications is struggling. And, so the, the idea was, okay, you know, growth team is struggling to build out machine learning applications um, uh, or to build out, you know, 
machine learning applications for uh, referrals or for our like marketing spend. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, product people are struggling to build machine learning models for, you know, when do we send this email? Everything, just everything. Yeah. And so the hypothesis was, okay, we could build a lot more, you know, interesting machine learning applications if we centralized a team mm-hmm. uh, to build good infrastructure. And so we basically had the charter. Um, I decided I wanted to try and be a product manager. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, you know, I really loved doing data work and being kind of hands-on. Later, I went back to do data work and I still do data work. Yeah. So it's like, I, I really enjoyed it, but it just felt like there was this high leverage um, role of actually building tools for a data scientist where I was a data scientist. I know what the job is. I know what the problems are and I can, you know, talk to these people and relate to them. And because of that, you know, I could probably build pretty great tools for them. Um, And so I decided, you know, I I should um, move over to to the product team. And so there were a few engineers and and we basically decided that, you know, we were going to try and build out a few different pieces of infrastructure. And... um, I'm, this is, these are like the fuzzy memories of, you know, things that I did five years ago, yeah. but, um, there were basically, you know, a few different pieces and it followed the, the life cycle of building a machine learning model. Mm-hmm. So we built out a feature store, uh, we built out an environment to go and, you know, develop models with where you were connected to, you know, an eight GPU machine on, you know, AWS or something like that, if you want to do deep learning yeah. or just a, you know, really, really like a machine with two terabytes of RAM, if you wanted to just download a ton yeah. of data and, and do it locally. Um, and so we built out this kind of notebook environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we built a tool that made it so that you could take the notebooks that you were building mm-hmm. and build a, um, production worthy machine learning model yeah. off of those notebooks. Mm-hmm. And then we built a system that allowed you to um, basically take that uh, you know deployable machine learning model mm-hmm. and host it and turn it into an endpoint for serving yeah. uh, to some kind of production application. Um, and then we talked a lot about building monitoring of those models, but yeah. it turns out building those four took so much time that we didn't actually spend a ton of time on the monitoring tool, mm-hmm. but we built some basic monitoring of, of those kinds of models. And so those were the five parts of a system that we called Big Head. So, yeah. yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And uh, when you build a tool you want, it works on every use cases in Airbnb. So how how do you make sure that um, it will scale uh, for different type of use cases? Yeah. So that's really hard. And one of the things that we realized was these three applications, the trust and safety, the pricing mm-hmm. and search, they were probably not going to come use our tooling for a while because <laughs> yeah. they had just spent six years building tools, mm-hmm. you know, from the earliest days of the company um, to be able to serve those models. Yeah. And so um, we ended up, we ended up basically um, just really building for the smaller applications mm-hmm. initially and trying to kind of find the new applications. Um, and so that meant, you know, just trying to support new parts of the company um, in kind of what they were building. And, you know, I think that that was probably more successful. Um, and it meant that we got to start people off, you know, using the kind of uh, tools that we wanted um, 
you know, to kind of build out and for the like initial applications. It also meant that we basically just built for their applications. Yeah. Um, and so we ended up just building tools around kind of their applications. Oh, got it. So it's yeah. not like I'm just going to build an application agnostic tool. I'm going to focus on a few use cases yeah. to begin with. And then generalize out from yeah. there. So, yeah. Do, do you remember what are the um, initial use cases that you focused on? Yeah, I mean, we definitely worked with the growth team just mm -hmm. because I had some connections there. And so yeah. we were trying to support their, um, I think it was their ad bidding model. Mm -hmm. That was one. And then the pricing team eventually ended up, you know, um, asking us to support some of their models. Yeah. Um, so those were some of the early ones. We worked with the trust and safety team for some of their kind of newer, smaller models. Like, um, I think rather than trying to, take the really big model that was really important we took smaller ones like yeah. i think there were they were working some models that would predict like account takeovers and those kinds of things mm -hmm. so yeah, yeah some some smaller models initially yeah i think for um machine learning platforms there's always some issues when data scientists want to use a version of a programming language or a certain package in my support so how do you handle those type of situations we just made it really flexible. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we just hosted a Jupyter environment yeah. that allowed them to um, to kind of pull whatever packages they want. And then there was a ton of compute behind the scenes so that they could do crazy things. Yeah. Um, and then we had this thing, the, the way that we served machine learning models mm -hmm. um, basically made it so that uh, we took, it was, it was, you know, Pro it sounds crazy, but we basically took um, some like Python code, wrapped it up in an environment, and then served it uh, in this like Java environment. Mm -hmm. Which saying that makes no sense, but that's what we did, and it worked really well. Yeah, so. and uh, you mentioned when you were building it, you were not trying to uh, make the three big teams to use this. Eventually, did they adopt this tool? So the pricing team definitely did, you know, while I was, while I was there, yeah. I think I actually don't know, you know, yeah. it's been, it's been about four years now. Mm -hmm. I would, I have to imagine that, you know, that those teams are using at least parts of that infrastructure yeah. by now because it's, it's pretty mature. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. And uh, after you build a tool, was it hard for you to um, gain adoption from different teams? Yeah, it really was. I mean, I think building building tooling is really, really hard. It's mm -hmm. a, I mean, building all kinds of products yeah. is really hard, but building tooling, I think is particularly hard. Um, and it's because you're really kind of expecting somebody to change something that's so critical to them, mm -hmm. right? Like, and there's so many problems, but, um, you're expecting them to change an experience that like, they do every single day and they yeah. need it to work and it needs to be clean and consistent and like, it needs to be a good experience. Yeah. Um, and so it takes a lot of polish to replace tools. If somebody truly doesn't have a tool, like if they need to dig a hole and you give them a shovel, mm -hmm. then like, that's great. Yeah. But finding opportunities like that is pretty rare. Mm -hmm. Most of the time they have a shovel to dig a hole and you're trying to figure out how to like, you know, help them, help them dig the hole faster. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So what was your pitch or what is your approach to gain adoption? Um, for them, it was basically just, we'll build what you want. Mm -hmm. Like you are limited, you have limited engineering resources. Yeah. We'll build the infrastructure that you want. 
to do to support machine learning applications. Right. And internally, that's a much easier pitch than, you know, externally, mm -hmm. because internally it's like, well, we're all on the same team. So you're going to build some stuff and then, you know, I will use it and then you'll find ways to generalize that. Um, externally, it's like, do I want to trust this external vendor to, you know, build the right tools for yeah. me or do I want to trust my own teams? Like, do I hire people mm -hmm. or do I go talk? Yeah. Yeah. But you also have limited resources for your own team when you build a platform. And uh, I imagine at one point you probably won't be able to cater to every request from different teams. So how do you at that point make the decision? Um, am I going to yeah. make my two more generalized or more specialized? So this is, you know, people talk about one of my favorite decisions at Airbnb is that we were really intentional about doing things that didn't scale. Yeah. And that's like a, a thing that Airbnb has repeated a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, that's on podcasts yeah. and all, it's all over the place. And I think my biggest, probably my biggest and most important learning mm -hmm. from Airbnb is that people think about problems of scale way too early. Yeah. And so we just didn't have that problem, you know, not in the first year of building tooling. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, this, this is related to startups. Like mm -hmm. obviously you want to think about how you scale a business. Like you want to think about that, but if you're willing to do things that don't scale, the thing that you would ultimately build to allow that business to scale or to allow that tool to, you know, to scale or to allow your team to scale within an organization yeah might not be the same thing that you would build initially mm -hmm. because if the product changes or, you know, the way that you interact with customers changes, yeah. then like you just wasted all this effort thinking about how to make this thing scale. That doesn't even matter anymore. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's, uh, that's a, a great point because like you mentioned, sometimes we want to build a tool. We think about, we want to build something or create a model that gonna be useful for every use cases then maybe in the end you're not catered to even just one use case um, and then you might have some problem after you build this seemingly perfect product um, so what are some other important decisions you made uh, when you build this platform I think that building things building things in really kind of flexible ways mm -hmm. was you know like I, I mentioned, we built things that, you know, solved very specific problems, but we built them in ways that allowed us to kind of extend them and make them more flexible yeah. in the future. And there's a kind of, you know, gentle, like there's a kind of, you know, I don't know, like a song and dance mm -hmm. there where you kind of, you're trying to um, solve a very specific problem, but as you solve it, you're trying to kind of write the code and design the product in a way that doesn't make it so that you can't solve other problems. Right. It just means that you solve that problem, but you're like kind of leaving all of your doors open. And I think that that's a really important um, approach to kind of product development for for tools, basically. Right. Um, and so we did a lot of that, you know, and, and examples are we had this like, you know, Jupyter Notebook environment um, where, you know, we could back it up with whatever machines AWS could give us. Mm -hmm. And, but it was, it could have been more than that. Like there could have been, you know, other environments that allowed you to host like our studio or I don't know, yeah. like, you know, different environments. Mm -hmm. um, 
uh, to do kind of analytical work on those machines. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, previously I had yeah. uh, uh, William Pinar talked about yeah, cool. Feature Store at Tecton. So um, can you tell me a little bit about the Feature Store you built? Yeah, so um, the Feature Store we built, you know, it was we started working on it before we had ever heard of feature stores anywhere else. And, mm -hmm. um, the impetus for it. And I think a lot of people kind of came to this idea at the same, you know, at the same time, Yeah. the impetus for us was just that we talked to different teams and they were using the same features. Mm -hmm. Um, and they had slightly different ways of calculating them. They were using different tools, yeah. um, et cetera, but it ended up being, um, it ended up being, you know, basically just that we wanted to be able to define this logic once mm -hmm. and then reuse it. Um, and it, I think the thing that we were kind of surprised by is that there were very slight differences in the logic for a lot of the features that we were mm -hmm. calculating. And people just didn't want to change the logic to be consistent with other teams. Yeah. They didn't want to use the logic that other teams were using. Mm -hmm. And so we didn't actually end up having any reuse of features. Yeah. We ended up having a lot of um, just a lot of kind of forking a feature and like modifying it in some ways, okay. uh, which I think actually really surprised us. Mm. But um, I think, you know, the difference, one of the interesting things about machine learning is that every model performs like slightly better or slightly worse with yeah. a different feature. Right. And so you're going to use the one that makes your model perform better. Mm -hmm. doesn't really matter to you if it's like a correct definition of a feature. Yeah. You know, it's like, it right. doesn't matter that it's consistent. And so we ended up just, um, we ended up just, you know, making it really easy to fork features and, you know, use them amongst different teams. But really what it did was it, it made it easy for people to, um, backfill data sets because we had a lot of data mm -hmm. uh, for training and then uh, it also made it really easy for people to um, to you know stream new data sets uh, for um, for their kind of online serving of their machine learning models yeah um, but it, it I think a lot of what we were doing is actually very similar um, probably more rudimentary than like the feature stores that exist mm -hmm. today um, but yeah, it was, you know, and I think we actually talked to some of the people at Uber who are working on the Michelangelo platform that then yeah. became kind of uh, Tecton mm -hmm. um, at various points. So, yeah. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And uh, as a data scientist, I think I might want to reuse the exact feature my I created earlier oh yeah or in my team but i can relate to that i might not trust you know it's not that like i don't trust the data scientists but they might have different mm -hmm. assumptions they're tuning different parameters so the feature might not be exactly the same so the yeah. fact that you make it very easy to fork and so i can mod just modify a little bit i think it still can save a lot of time yeah 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 definitely um so you basically worked on the two m most important use cases in data science, experimentation and machine learning, <laughs> and you built tools for them. And yeah. uh, now you um, founded your own company. So what is yeah. the motivation behind that? Yeah, so I was you know, at Airbnb until 2018. Um, I, I joined this startup after uh, Airbnb uh, called Branch. And 
it was a uh, micro lender. And so I was doing machine learning and data analysis and all kinds of things, but at a much, much smaller scale. Yeah. And, you know, now I'm really thankful because it, it kind of highlighted to me how different the world that I was existing in at Airbnb was mm -hmm. from the rest of the world. Yeah. Um, you know, I was the, I was the first data person on the team. Okay. And there were some engineers who were interested in data and had yeah. done some data work, but I was kind of the first dedicated data mm -hmm. person. And uh, we, we ended up hiring a few really great data people. But I just realized that like some of the tools that we built were really special. And the kinds of tools that people could buy were just not even close. And, yeah. you know, I, I think that they weren't even close because, you know, because it's really, really hard to build generalized versions of some of these tools. Yeah. Like building a building a feature store within a company or building a metrics repository that mm -hmm. backs your experimentation platform is easy if you're the only user of it. You can build something for yourself and then you know you use it and a few yeah. other people at your company use it. But you're on a specific set of infrastructure and it mm -hmm. works a specific way. And um the the like main realization that I had was just that um, you know this could be really, really valuable, but the hard part was going to be generalizing it. Yeah. And so in 2019, I was, I was honestly, I was kind of feeling burnout from just, you know, I was, I, I guess at that point about seven years of, you know, doing data work. Yeah. And, um, and so I took some time off and as a part of that, I just started thinking about ideas and uh, it was kind of similar actually to just before I joined Airbnb, yeah. I took some time off and I was like, I was like, could I start a company right now? Mm -hmm. And, um, and I just, you know, I, I just kind of, as I thought about it, I just built up more and more confidence that we could actually take some of the things that we had built, some of the, the really useful parts of the experimentation platform and, and metrics, um, you know, tooling, and that we could actually build generalized versions of those tools. Um, and, you know, luckily we, we're in this world where, I think that it's become much more normal to have a very stable cloud data warehouse, mm -hmm. um, which I think is a requirement for uh, building a really great metrics repository. And then I think the other part of this is just that data analysts and data data scientists have uh, ha now have tools that allow them to do a lot of data engineering work, yeah. right? And it's the probably like it's the I think it's satisfying, but I think it's also like not, it's not ultimately the work that derives value, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think people want to have a lot of kind of power at, at in their hands of like, I want to do data engineering work, but I want to do it fast and I want to be able to do a lot of it and I want to yeah. build really great clean data for mm -hmm. my analysis. And that's really satisfying because then you know what you're building, right. but they really, really don't want to like tinker around and write thousands of lines of SQL and then like yeah. try and stitch together cron jobs on like, you know, a Hadoop system that like <laughs> just doesn't work. And so we're past that now, right? Mm. We have, you know, like Airflow, I think was a really, really big part of getting us, getting us past that. And, you know, now we have all of these great tools, like, you know, we've got Fivetran and Stitch to like pull the data into the warehouse and we've got BigQuery and Redshift and uh, Snowflake. And then we've got DBT and, you know, from there, we've, we've basically got like the tools that we need to do foundational work with data. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that there's this 
you know, new and exciting kind of set of applications that we're just not pursuing today. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's, it's in part because we have all of these tools, but it's still extremely manual to mm-hmm. go in and construct data sets for these different applications. And I think, you know, the, the way that I would think about this is if, you know, for everyone, everyone who's like, you know, listening to this and, and like thinks about the data pipelines that they have, just like think about all of the different, all of the different kinds of, you know, expressions of logic that you have, right? All of the different joins, all of the mm-hmm. different filters and, you know, um, all of the work that you do to kind of get that, those data sets in place. There is so much repetition in that work. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's hundreds, thousands of lines of SQL mm-hmm. to just generate hundreds, thousands of tables and data warehouses. And I think ultimately every single time we get new questions, like we kind of just need to like go and make more data and, and extend, you know, that DAG of, of different data sets that we're building. And so, um, those were like some of the really big realizations that I had. Yeah. And, um, we had built some great tooling around metrics. So kind of moving on to transform and like why we started working on this. Um, you know, I, I started brainstorming with, um, two of my favorite coworkers from Airbnb, (laughs) uh, James and Paul. And James was the product manager for the data tools team Mm -hmm. in 2014. And then eventually the uh, director of product for all of infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And then Paul was a uh, tech lead on data infrastructure an engineering manager on data infrastructure. Um, He played a huge role in kind of maintaining airflow and Airbnb's public, you know, um, presence and kind of, you know, building airflow out. Yeah. And so I started talking to them a lot and we realized, you know, just these problems are really, really prevalent. And, um, you know, the more we talked to other companies, we realized, hey, Airbnb kind of solves some of these problems, mm-hmm. but in a very like big company kind of way, like we've got, you know, all these tools, we can build all this stuff. Yeah. And most people just can't do that. And so I started working on Transform towards the end of 2019. Uh, we kind of formally started the company you know, in, in 2020 and James and Paul joined and we raised some money and started hiring some people. And, you know, the core of it was just that we believe that metrics are this, like, ultimately the unit, the kind of thing that we are trying to build in order to do a bunch of analysis. Mm-hmm. And beyond that, they're kind of the language for data. Like yeah. when you go and you get a request for data, your business user you know, your, your kind of business partner, like whoever it is that you're working with, they're probably asking for data in the format of like, I'd like to see revenue, you know, by country for this new product category we launched. Mm -hmm. And if you think about that, like revenue, that's a metric, Yeah. you know, um, product category, that's a dimension, like, uh, you know, product, uh, or like by country, like, that's a another dimension, mm-hmm. right? And so we're filtering by a dimension, we're grouping by a dimension, and these are all reused. And so we should be able to consolidate the logic for these different semantic objects, yeah, and uh, and not redefine them a bunch of different times, right? So if I'm a data analyst using uh, Transform, so I can easily construct those common metrics. But what if there are some metric that very specific to my team, am I able to create that within Transform? Yeah. So um, at the core 
um, this is the thing that I'm really excited about. So actually it was about a week and a half ago. Um, yeah, about a week ago, we launched an open source project called metric flow. Oh, cool. You yeah. open source it. Yeah. We open sourced it. Nice. Um, and I'm just so excited about this because, you know, the, a feature store is, you know, there's a ton of semantic information in there. Like that's, that is a, basically a semantic layer for uh, machine learning. Yeah. And a, you know, the metrics work that I did on experimentation was basically semantic layers. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of realized like I've been working on the same thing for like eight years Yeah. and we've learned a ton over time. Airbnb, you know, worked on, um, Airbnb has now has a tool called Minerva, which was built off of some of the early metrics work. Mm -hmm. And, um, it's fantastic. I mean, it's one of the most used tools inside of Airbnb. And so this, you know, this kind of platform at its core is a semantic layer. And that's not a new thing. You know, semantic layers have existed for a long, long time. Uh, there are tools called, you know, like business objects is an, is an older version of this. Um, Looker in some ways is, you know, is a semantic layer yeah. uh, wrapped up with a BI tool. Uh, Power BI has a semantic modeling uh, tool. And what's really unique about Transform is, one, it's a very powerful semantic layer. And, you know, what does that mean? It means you can mm -hmm. define like more metric types with less configuration. It can do more things. It can build metrics to uh, four different applications that other semantic yeah. layers can't. Experimentation is an example. Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of metrics layers out there uh, now. You know, it's, it's turning into a category. And I look around at them. And I don't think that those people have ever worked on experimentation because they're not going to be able to build metrics for product experimentation. Yeah. Um, and, and so we just, you know, have kind of built up this experience and, and we just thought about it and we said, this is core infrastructure. This is a huge technical project. Mm -hmm. This will thrive in the open. Um, and, you know, we started thinking about that about two years ago, but decided we wanted to build uh, you know, kind of closed off because it allowed us to just have a ton of focus. We didn't, we didn't need like, you know, communities, community opinions yet. We wanted to build the foundation, get it to a place where, mm -hmm. um, you know, we could really kind of be really, really proud and know that it was the best foundation that we could put forward. Right. And then, you know, really kind of open it up and try and get some help with generalizing it and broadening mm -hmm. it. Um, so yeah, it's it's out in the open. It's really exciting. For yeah, us. that's really cool. And when you build a reporting tool for uh, the experimentation Airbnb, we talked about you adopt some design thinking. You try to um, influence the user to have you know use best practices when it comes to uh, decision making. So now yeah. with Transform. Your customers are from different industries. They have their own use cases. Um, are you also having some suggestions on the tool? For example, oh, you're creating this metric, but this metric might give you, I don't know, just example, high variance. Maybe yeah. you need to be careful. Yeah. Do you have those type of design? Yeah, so there, it's, it's riddled with opinions. Yeah. We have so many opinions on this space, <laughs> right? Like you work on something for this long, and I was thinking about this between... The original metrics repo that I worked on in Airbnb, an evolution of that that you know I was an end user of, so I I was kind of providing feedback on, yeah. and then you know um, this semantic layer inside of Airbnb um, that was you know that 
was basically behind our feature store. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I worked on another feature store actually at that startup branch. Yeah. Um, and it, it was kind of like a metric store also. Another version at Transform, I'm now on my sixth version of, of like a semantic layer. So I've been building basically these same things for like <laughs> eight years. So yeah. I have a ton of opinions. Um, when I maybe just to kind of set a foundation, the way that I think about what a you know what a metrics store is, mm-hmm. um, there are kind of four pieces. There is semantics. How do I define what an entity is? Yeah. What a metric is? What is a dimension? Mm-hmm. Um, and this is really really important because if you do this wrong, you know you capture a bunch of unnecessary information. You don't yeah. capture the right information, and that prevents you from pursuing certain applications. Mm-hmm. Um, or you capture information in a really kind of non-dry way mm-hmm. and it becomes very, very hard to manage. Um, and so, you know, I would say that probably the best way to look at our opinions is to go to go to our, you know, documentation. But yeah. um, there's a lot there, you know, in the way that we uh, take in a data source and kind of say, you know, who are the entities that exist within the data source? Like, it's a transactions table, and so the primary key is transactions, and the foreign keys are users mm-hmm. and you know products, and so those are you know foreign keys that go off to you know dimensional tables that have more yeah. dimensions on those things. Um, so there's there's kind of this like you know ontology of information that is stored in mm. these uh, in this like in the structure of the project, and what that enables us to do is then uh, be really, really flexible. So next really important thing is querying. How do I query these metrics? And so our querying interfaces allow you to ask for, you know, I want this metric sliced by this dimension. I want this metric sliced by these dimensions. Yeah. I want, you know, this very complicated metric, like a rolling cumulative window with filters, et cetera. Um, and, and to actually be able to express that in like a very clean way and query it and then get, um, you know, what ultimately might be like 100 lines of SQL to write uh, back to you uh, really, really quickly in kind of whatever applications you're trying to use. Um, and then the other pieces are around kind of performance and governance. Mm-hmm. And performance is important just because when you ask for a metric, you don't want to wait that long. Yeah. So how do you generate efficient SQL? Do you cache data? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's some interesting stuff there. And then governance, I think, is probably the piece where um, it's it's hard to be opinionated because everyone is opinionated about governance, right? Yeah. Um, and everyone wants to govern their their data in, in different ways. But with metrics, I think that there are there are kind of best practices, and we try to support those. And so it's around how do you manage a life cycle of metrics, yeah. right? Um, so definition, iteration, archival, you know. Um, all of those kinds of workflows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, thanks for sharing that. Um, so now, like you mentioned, there are more and more tools to empower data scientists, but it's also sometimes kind of confusing for us to choose what tools yeah. to use. So um, in, in your, based on your experiences, what type of tools that you think is going to be like retiring from our job and what, what type of tools will be emerging and we probably need to start to pay attention to yeah so i know you're biased but it's okay <laughs> yeah no, no no that's i i think that the i definitely have opinions and i think most of my opinions 
I probably used to have more opinions around, you know, compute frameworks and okay. tools like that. Yeah. And I think most of my opinions nowadays are around the tools that we use to consume data. Mm. And I think that the biggest trend that I've seen is that um, historically people have built these really big monolithic BI tools. Yeah. Right. Like, you know, I, I think that there are a bunch of different examples in the past, but BI tools that are expected to be everything and do everything with data. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, every data set that you produce ultimately just goes to that one BI tool and gets yeah. distributed to the rest of your business. Mm -hmm. But they don't really expose interfaces that, um, you know, end business users really like or that data analysts really like. Mm -hmm. They don't, you know, necessarily do as much as they could with executive reporting or with forecasting or with anomaly detection or with product experimentation yeah. or with like any number of, of applications that people have with data. Mm -hmm. And so um, the thing that I'm really excited about is just, I think that we're moving away from this world of the monolithic BI tool mm -hmm. being the one place where data goes right. to more custom applications mm -hmm. that serve their end users much, much better. And I think that the reason why we get to do this is that data is being seen as more valuable to more you know, in more applications and to more end users. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that means that, um, that means that we get to basically, um, have more tools for specific end users. Yeah. So I like the idea of data analysts having really flexible environments to kind of go and do analysis. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's, you know, interesting things happening in the kind of, um, like what, has historically been that like notebook type experience of yeah. with like deep note and hex are really interesting mm -hmm. tools. Um, and then, you know, there's kind of this evolution of like the like analytics, you know, first kind of querying interface. Um, like I think mode is an example of a tool that, you know, data users really like. And I, I think, you know, business users have historically had like harder times querying mm -hmm. uh, from those kinds of tools that try to be more powerful for data analysts. Yeah. But at the same time, now we're building tools uh, that business users like a lot more. So mm -hmm. better self-serve environments. Um, and I think there's, you know, uh, Sigma is an interesting BI tool that's kind of popping up and, and trying to, to do that. Yeah. Um, and so I'm just excited that, you know, we're building each of these these tools that have more specific end mm -hmm. users. And I hope, you know, obviously I'm really biased, <laughs> but I hope that what the metrics layer can mm -hmm. do is provide consistency to all of these different tools. Yeah. When I'm a data analyst and I want to, you know, go and see revenue by product category mm -hmm. by day, like I should be able to go look in my, you know, analytical environment and I should be able to interact with like a Python API to go and yeah. pull that data. And at the same time, my business user should be able to go to like Google Sheets mm -hmm. and select revenue yeah. and product category and day and then get back a data set mm -hmm. that they can then go and pivot in like the environment that they like. Yeah. Um, so I'm really excited about that because I think it means more choice for end users. Mm -hmm. um, and ultimately the right tool to use is 
the tool that makes you more productive and more impactful. Yeah. Um, whether you're a data scientist or a business, you know, stakeholder. Yeah, that's very exciting. And when I read the description of transform, you now uh, label it as a metric store for data yeah. analysts. So I, I haven't used it yet. So bear with me if I'm asking about the yeah, feature no that you already have. So data analyst, mm -hmm. when they, um, talk to their stakeholders, eventually it's going to be a report. So the next step would be they may, they might want to, you know, visualize it, um, create some type of a, a dashboard. And also there are more low code, no code machine learning tools. They might also want to use some sales, some metrics for a region to build a machine learning model. So do you see uh, this metric store going to the direction into a feature store for machine learning, or are you going to add some similar features like Tableau kind of dashboard into it to kind of complete the loop of the analyst's um, work cycle? So I think neither. Um, so why not feature store? The problems there are very different. There are challenges around kind of point in time correctness. Typically in machine learning, you want your data to be accurate as of the moment that you would have run your model, mm -hmm. which if you're trying to backfill and kind of, you know, yeah. uh, train your model, you want specific moments of like, how many, you know, how many transactions did this user have at this moment, you know, on like the, you know, at 722 yeah. PM on this day. <laughs> and like, that's a really hard problem. And yeah. that's, that's actually the opposite of what data analysts want. Mm. What data analysts want is they want all of the information. They don't want data, you know, the like information at a specific moment in time. Okay. Um, I mean, maybe they do for so very specific. So they just need analysis. a snapshot, snap a snapshot like exactly. once a month. They don't need it to be like a data stream. Yeah. Yeah, okay. and so they're they're just kind of different questions, and the most important thing there is that they are very different pieces of technology mm -hmm. to build. Yeah. Um, there are overlapping concepts and ideas, but they're very different technologies. Yeah. The other thing is. You know, people don't necessarily want their uh, features to be exactly the same between teams. People mm. definitely want their metrics to be the same. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, um, if you can't you can't have twenty different teams in a company, or even two different teams in a company, mm -hmm. saying, you know, I like to calculate revenue like this, and I like to calculate revenue like yeah. this. That is a nightmare. <laughs> Nobody wants that. And every data so, scientist has deal with that nightmare. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing is like, you know, related to, will we become, you know, a BI tool? Mm -hmm. Um, I think that we're working very hard to avoid that. And yeah. the way that we're working hard to avoid that is by exposing different interfaces for people to query data from. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we have some, some really big ones right now. Like, uh, there's a command line interface to go and do development. So you go and you change the definition of your metrics in, in your kind of, you know, transform um, in, in metric flow, the, yeah. the underlying framework, and you can go and test it. You can run queries against your warehouse. Mm -hmm. You can see the SQL that metric flow generates. Yeah. Um, you can also, you know, go and uh, connect to BI tools. Mm -hmm. So, for example, you can connect mode, hex, um, you know, different applications uh, Tableau, for example, mm -hmm. um, to transform. And uh, from those interfaces, you know, you can pull data out of transform. Um, and so there are a few different options, but, you know, Tableau has um, a uh, 
uh, web data connector that allows you to kind of yeah. pull uh, data out of transform. Mm -hmm. And then in motor hex, uh, you can go and you can write SQL. And uh, the SQL basically is all the same SQL that you'd write against your Snowflake or Redshift or BigQuery. Um, but it also generates uh, the metric definitions within the SQL uh, that you're running. Yeah. And so um, that basically means that you have all the power of your underlying data warehouse, mm -hmm. but you also have consistent metric definitions. Yeah. So you can basically just say, hey, give me revenue by day mm -hmm. and then go and join it to this other table and do all of this other analysis yeah. with it. And so then it's in the workflows that you already have in your BI tools, mm -hmm. but you can pull consistent metrics into them. Right. Yeah, I yeah. think it definitely solve a problem because I remember every time I create some reports, uh, the the biggest problem there's always different type of data sources. How do you consolidate that? And different yeah. data sources have different, you know, logic. So if we have something consistent and also we can we can trust, I think um, that would be a great news for data analysts. And also, um, I think it's it's good that you, sounds like you're very clear about what you don't want to do. So you want to uh, just focus on- Focus is important. Yeah. yeah. Um, There's a lot to build. That being said, there are, there are applications for metrics that are not, you know, business intelligence mm -hmm. that I think that people don't pursue today because they don't have the ability to generate metric logic very easily. Yeah. And I think- being able to generate metrics for product experimentation, mm -hmm. you know, we've, we talked about it a bunch. It's really, really important yeah. and it's really, really hard. And, you know, I was, I was explaining how important it is to be able to track, you know, tens, hundreds of metrics mm -hmm. against your experiments. The reason people don't do that is because joining, you know, 80 different tables around your warehouse yeah. to assignment data sets and calculating a hundred different metrics is like, a month worth of work and nobody has time to do that. Yeah, exactly. Um, Especially if there's a specific metric just for my experiment, for my team that nobody have used before, then I have to go there, validate yeah. the data quality and then create yeah. all the, the new queries nobody exactly. has created before. Exactly. Yeah. But imagine if everyone could just publish their queries. It's, you know, I think one really interesting trend is people talk about like distributed or centralized data teams. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, What's great about centralized data teams is, you know, everything happens in one place. So it's very easy to kind of keep right. things consistent. Uh, what, you know, what's great about distributed teams is you get a bunch of people who are really close to their, you know, end business mm -hmm. partners, to the people who they're doing yeah. work with. Well, what if we could kind of have both of those benefits? Right, like a hybrid. Exactly. Mm -hmm. By allowing people to be close to their business users, but to contribute to the central definitions mm -hmm. of metrics and to allow everyone to consume those same definitions. Um, I, you know, I think about some of those experiments we were talking about and the really interesting thing here is like, um, I did so much analysis on, you know, customer service contact rate. Yeah. I, to this day, do not know how Airbnb defines that metric. Right. But I spent probably hundreds of hours doing analysis on that metric. Yeah. And I know that the analyst who is responsible for it mm -hmm. defined it correctly. Yeah. And every single time I did analysis, they asked me, where did it come from? Mm -hmm. And I pointed at our metric definition and they said, okay, cool. That's how I defined it. Yeah. <laughs> so we just, we trusted each other because we had these centralized definitions. Yeah. Um, we weren't, you know, in a room hashing out the differences mm -hmm. between our hundreds of lines of SQL. Right. Mostly. 
you know. Yeah, and like you mentioned, <laughs> the, the uh, when you make launch decisions, you always have the company-wide core metrics, and those things you do want to be. Uh, centralized so um, you know it's not like everybody create their different um, you know wh what is it the customer the complaint related metric oh customer uh, customer, customer service yeah, ticket right. contact and ratio then, yeah, yeah but you do also want to have uh, maybe some specific metric just for your own experiment that only your team um, defines so yeah that's very exciting um, so now looking back at your journey from uh, um, quant to data data scientist to product manager now CEO. What are some uh, um, important lessons you you learned? What is uh, some kind of mindset shift? I talked about some of the lessons around kind of removing my bias, yeah. you know, and around doing data work, and I think that was a really really important one that I learned early on in my um, in my time doing data analysis. Yeah. I think. Um, you know, the more I got into building tools and, and working on tools, I think that that removing bias became more important because you have these opinions around, you know, how you like to work. But yeah. ultimately, the way that you need to build tools is you need to go and ask other people, like, right. how do you want to work with data? Like, what's what's wrong with your workflows? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think a big part of that is just listening. Yeah. Um, I, you know, the... Honestly, the the like the thing that I just try and constantly, um, you know, constantly try and maintain in my career is um, just being being nice to people. Yeah. Honestly, like it's it's an amazing, you know, it's it's um, one it feels good, <laughs> um, and two, I think that you know people root for you and want to work with you right. and want to. They want to teach you things. They want to learn from mm -hmm. you. And it just makes, I think, everything in life a lot easier. Yeah. Um, and so that's, you know, that's something that was kind of, I think, has generally been pretty important in my career and just something that I've, I've tried to uh, maintain. And I think a, a big part of that is to, you know, operate with in integrity. Yeah. Um, and so I, you know, have always just tried to be really honest and, and also, you know, tried to recognize, um, like what that actually means. Mm -hmm. So, you know, examples are when I first moved into managing people, I found that that desire to be nice, you know, and, and Airbnb has this culture of, you know, be a host. Be a host. Is, yeah. yeah. And it's, it's really, really important and it's true. Um, but I think that in some time, in some ways it kind of gotten in the way of Airbnb's culture mm -hmm. to some extent, like, it prevented people from giving feedback in ways that I think would have been beneficial. Yeah. And so I think that if you can, you know, now I, I try and rely on some of these lessons, but I think that if you can really kind of have good intent when you go and give feedback to somebody, it's actually one of the nicest things that right. you can do. Yeah. Right. Um, and it might so be hard for the moment, but it's it nice is. in the long yeah. term. Yeah, it's really hard, and I think especially when you're learning how to give feedback, you know, I, I think trying to be honest with people and and like let do them you know, just, like, do you sandwich it? Do you follow the formula? I don't, and honestly, <laughs> I get feedback that you know that yeah. I'm too direct sometimes. Yeah, I think that the you know the formula is interesting, <laughs> um, but I find I don't know I I feel like in some ways the formula kind of takes away from 
the yeah, like, sometimes honesty I feel it, yeah it feels less authentic because so many people using that they give you something positive and then you know the butt is coming i know right <laughs> and then and then they finish and it with something just, nice yeah, and, and i'm like just i don't also feel take good. away the nice thing they're yeah. saying in the end like, right yeah like yeah i don't feel good i knew that you just had to say something nice <laughs> right, there. <laughs> like, yeah but you know i think a big part of that is also trying to um trying to receive feedback really well yeah um, and you know uh, I think that culture is made by a group of people mm -hmm. and at transform we one of the first things we do did actually I remember getting some emails of my first investor update ever to our investors said hey you know the three founders got together we talked about things and anyways here are our values and here's the kind of culture we want to build yeah and everyone was responded to us and was just like really like that's one of the first things you did that's mm -hmm. kind of cool most companies don't do that yeah um and i just remember thinking like what do most companies do to start because this mm -hmm. seems really really important yeah um and you know those those values have evolved we did a team offsite um a, a little while back and and kind of changed them mm -hmm. um we you know went from six down to four and kept two and got, added two new ones um but some of those are just direct products of i think you know the kinds of people who we tried to hire mm -hmm. which i think are kind of reflective of the environment that we want to work in yeah and so there are things like you know um lead with empathy is is the first one and it's yeah. the first one because we're leading with empathy and like, yeah um and then you know there's some other ones in there around kind of growth and and kind of the mm -hmm. passion that we bring to our work and yeah and whatnot um that are just honestly things that i feel like are really important but i didn't I didn't force those things on people. It was, that's what, that's the group that we hired. And yeah. that's the thing that we all realized was important. Um, and it just has a, you know, it has a really significant impact if you can mm -hmm. find a group of people who believe those, the same, the same things as each other, you know? Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. What are some mistakes you made in your career? Um, okay. So I think the, one of the ones that we talked about that I think was really significant was just kind of tangling my own bias and my own beliefs with the data. Mm -hmm. And I think that that made me less effective as a data scientist early on because people couldn't tell the difference between what I was arguing for and what the data said. Yeah. Right? And so it, I almost made the data less impactful by kind of tangling those two things. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, that's definitely one. I... And you learned that and then you started to separate, you do separate uh, the two, the, okay. be really intentional about that. Say, mm -hmm. this is what the data says. And now this is what I believe. And this is why I believe it. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think data scientists should have opinions and should mm -hmm. say these things. Yeah. But I think that at the same time, they need to, um, you know, clearly articulate those, the differences. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's a really big one. I think that, you know, when I was, Initially starting to manage, I think I, I mentioned this one, you know, just a minute ago. I, I think that I was a little too nice, you know, I was, yeah. I, I was, I was kind of trying too hard to build a friendly relationship and mm -hmm. not a relationship where there was a lot of mutual trust around yeah. the fact that I was helping, I was doing my best to mm -hmm. kind of help somebody grow. Um, and I think that that is something that I've been, you know, been working on a lot. And yeah. I think that, 
yeah, I, I think that I've improved, but you know, there's a lot, a lot more improvement there that, you know, I can kind of keep working on. Yeah. You know, I was really early on in my career, I was really bad at, um, at just kind of like figuring out who to communicate things to. And yeah. like, it's really hard as a data person, you know, yeah. you know all about numbers mm -hmm. and you love analysis and you love thinking about that. But then you're like, I did some analysis. What do I do with this? Yeah. You know? And I think that that is a really underrated skill for data analysts because in some ways, like you're trying to influence people with data, right? Mm -hmm. And so you need to be able to find out, you need to figure out how to distribute that data and yeah. who to send it to and how they'll receive that message. And, you know, there's a lot of kind of interpersonal interactions there that go beyond like, you know, how proficient in Python or SQL am I, right? <laughs> right. Like, cause yeah. it's a lot more complicated than that. Um, and so, you know, that was something early on that, that I was, you know, just, I realized early on how important it was mm -hmm. and, and started working on that. Um, yeah. And then maybe just, you know, kind of to extend that one right now, something I'm working on is, is trying to be better at writing, trying yeah. to like write more, um, I have so many ideas in this kind of, you know, metric store space. And I have a lot of opinions about things that are not, you know, um, things that we're building that are kind of missing the point. Mm -hmm. Um, and I really want to kind of get the industry focused on the point of this tooling. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm figuring out kind of how to, how to talk more about that. Yeah. Um, so what is the one example of the industry is missing or we already covered that? Well, there are some very specific ones related to our product and kind of the technical implementation of it. Um, but I think that probably the most important one that I think that the industry is kind of missing is that the reason why Airbnb found this tool Minerva so valuable and the reason it found Metrics Repo so valuable was because it generated data pipelines. Mm -hmm. It took what you know would otherwise be a huge amount of data engineering work stuffed it into a few lines of, you know, YAML configuration yeah. and made it so that a data analyst, a data scientist could go and do this. Mm -hmm. And it would then programmatically write thousands of lines of SQL and do it in a very performant and efficient way, um, which ultimately produced, you know, metrics to a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and I think that what, when people look at metric stores today, they think a lot. And, and I think part of this is because of the, you know, early blog posts that other people in the industry wrote about mm -hmm. this, they think about like a JDBC that allows you to write SQL yeah. and allows you to kind of connect your BI mm -hmm. tool. The fact is Airbnb derived an unbelievable amount of value out of its metrics repo and Minerva mm -hmm. by 2020. And it didn't even expose an external API to pull data until yeah. 2020. Mm -hmm. And even now, you know, Airbnb is only really kind of just getting to the place where they're connecting tools like Superset and Tableau, um, you know, really well with with these tools. And so I think that people are kind of missing the point of what this is supposed to do and and think that it's a very thin layer around the data warehouse that just makes it so that you get consistent metrics in your BI tool. Mm -hmm. But the reality is, is it it's really meant to solve the just the burden of doing a huge amount of kind of, you know, data construction work. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And uh, do you have any mentors? Oh yeah, so many. Um, you know, the fun thing about starting a company is you get to meet a lot of really smart people mm -hmm. who want to invest or kind of advise in your yeah. company. 
Um, and so there are some really great people there. Um, I mean, you know, my mentor since like birth <laughs> are my, my parents and my brother. Yeah. Um, so I, my brother is, is, um, you know, I, I kind of, I followed him at various points in my career. Mm-hmm. Um, so he what went What is to, your brother doing now? Uh, he's, he's a products manager at, at, uh, at Block on, oh, on cool. Cash App. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so he's a growth product manager. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I followed him to school. We both went to UCLA. Yeah. Um, but he went, he's older, so he went there first. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and then I think now I just, yeah, I learn a lot from him. Um, and definitely, you know, my dad did a PhD in finance. And so I learned a lot of kind of business yeah. and, you know, legal and all mm-hmm. kinds of interesting things from him. And then, you know, outside of family, um, yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of kind of people who I've met in my career, right? Yeah. Um, For example, what is the most important thing you learn from your brother? Mm, he's incredibly patient and yeah. I'm incredibly impatient. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, that's probably the biggest one. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I, um, I think you have to be a little impatient. You yeah. have to be a little impatient to be a founder, mm-hmm. but you also have to realize that you're impatient. Right. Otherwise people just think, you know, you're a jerk. <laughs> yeah. But I feel like from the, um, the, the story where you collected all the events, I think there's a lot yeah. of patience there because I'm sure the stakeholder, oh, Hey, yeah. can we launch this faster? Um, yeah. I mean, interesting that, yeah, I think, yeah, I think that that probably was true. Yeah. <laughs> um, there are times in my, in my career where I've had to like learn how to be patient. That's probably another lesson. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, outside of that, I think my two co-founders now, honestly, are, are like, they were mentors to me before. Yeah. Um, so my co-founder James was my manager at Airbnb. Okay. He was my boss. Yeah. So we knew that we liked working with each other and I learned so much from him. He's, you know, he, um, is such a thoughtful leader mm-hmm. and he was managing, you know, 20 something PMs. Um, across various parts of Airbnb's infrastructure when when I was reporting to him. And he's just such a high empathy person. So like thoughtful, so kind. Um, and so, you know, I've learned a lot of lessons from him, especially now that we work, you know, um, closely together on Transform. Yeah. And I kind of get to see him make really hard decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the biggest lesson you learned from him? I think a lot of lessons are in empathy, mm-hmm. I think, with him. I think, you know... Empathy with uh, coworkers or with, with users? Everyone, or... coworkers, mm-hmm. users, everyone. He just, he has this way of just kind of putting himself in somebody else's shoes. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, he'll say, well, you know, they're probably thinking this and they're they're probably feeling this because of this. And like, you know, we should probably ask them this question to, to like clarify that yeah. and like try and understand how they're feeling about that. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, I didn't even think about that. Now I feel like I'm feel like I'm like, you know, not thinking enough about like from the, their perspective, what's yeah. happening. So I learned a lot, um, a lot there. Yeah. Who, who else? Um, I worked with a few really great, great data, data scientists. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that there were some some really great data scientists that, you know, in the kind of early days of my my work, just were like people who I could talk to. And there was one product manager at Airbnb actually, yeah. um, and uh, she was one of the first product managers I worked with. 
she was like, you know, so driven. Mm -hmm. Like she was like, we're going to ship on the deadline, like, you know, like a really great, like yeah. focused product mm -hmm. manager. But at the same time, she like was really, really good at, you know, communicating and like updating people and being flexible when like she needed to be flexible. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like she picked her battles really well. Yeah. And because of that, she was like very influential. Mm -hmm. um, and so I feel like, yeah, I learned a lot from her also. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thanks for sharing that. So it's like you can be very focused, but it doesn't mean you have to be a jerk. You can yeah, communicate exactly. and then also know what are <laughs> the deadlines you have to stick to and what are the things you can be mm -hmm. flexible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, if you were to mentor someone, what's your advice to mm. them? I think empathy is the biggest yeah. one. Just like try to understand the people that you're working with. Mm -hmm. Try to, you know, try to really, really understand them because ultimately the way that, you know, you will be more influential and, and you'll kind of have the ability to have a broader impact yeah. is is to build those relationships. Mm -hmm. And yeah. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Um, so before we wrap up, what is something in your life or in your career that you are excited about? Ooh, I just got engaged. Oh, so. congrats. <laughs> yeah, like, um, yeah, uh, three weeks ago, so. Nice. Um, are you planning a wedding already? Yeah, 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 <laughs> kind of. I mean, you kind of, yeah, it takes a long time. Yeah, so, yeah. nice. Um, and... Uh, um, what is, uh, something exciting in the near future for transform? Okay. So, well, I mean, you asked me a week after like launching my pride and joy, yeah. you know, the thing that I love, mm -hmm. you know, most at work is, is metric flow. It's, yeah. I'm just, I'm really excited about it because it is, I do believe that it's the most powerful semantic layer ever mm -hmm. built. Um, and it's, I'm really, really proud of so many of the decisions that we made in it. And I think that it's a foundation that, you know, we will build on for years. Mm -hmm. So that's the thing that I'm most excited about. Um, and yeah, I'll be, I'm uh, going to push out more of our kind of roadmap next week yeah. uh, to, to some folks. And I'm really hoping that people will contribute and that mm -hmm. companies will, you know, pick it up and play around with it um, or even individuals. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, and for folks who want to follow your journey, your writing, transform yeah. or engagement photos, where yeah. can I find you? <laughs> um, so on most social media accounts, I'm Nick underscore handle. Okay. Um, and That's my your handle. <laughs> handle, my handle, right. And it's, my last name is H-A-N-D-E-L, mm -hmm. uh, like the, the famous composer. Yeah. You know, that's Twitter and Instagram if you want to see the engagement photos <laughs> and, um, and then beyond that, you know, I, a lot of my writing, I'm trying to push to the transform blog. Mm -hmm. So that's, uh, yeah. Uh, blog.transform.co. And, um, yeah, if you reach out to, you know, transform and you want to demo, mm -hmm. uh, I'm happy to, to give a demo. So yeah. if anyone wants to, <laughs> to see transform, I would yeah. love to show them. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming to the show, Nick. I learned a lot and really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much. This was a ton of fun. Thank you.